the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is, and welcome back as we head into Hour 3 this Thursday, February 3rd, 2022, coming to you live from the Guns Etc. studios. There's a lot going on uh, culturally and needing perspective, which means we need our good friend, Dr. Tevi Troy, the Honorable Tevi Troy. He is the author of several books, a cultural uh, and presidential historian, most recently Fight House, Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump has a bunch of columns out, too, covering a lot of these things, ranging from uh, the Washington Examiner to the Washington Post. Anyway, Tevi, welcome back to the show. How are you, sir? Thanks. I'm honorable in that I'm honored to be here with you, Seth, and I look forward to the talk. Uh, you're very kind. You know, I actually say that because, well, you do know, but in case the audience doesn't know, is you are a Senate-confirmed presidential appointee not with this presidency <laughs> and uh, but uh, but uh, you you were the deputy secretary of health and human services in a previous administration and you deserve because you have earned the title honorable am i the only Thank one you. who calls you does your wife call you honorable only when yeah, you're in trouble yeah, that's that's when it happened a lot <laughs> okay when you, okay fair enough i have a lot uh, i want to uh go over with you and there's a lot flying around but you did have a couple columns one uh, one of them i have to tell you tevi i know you write a lot and it probably happens with you as a writer as it happens maybe a little bit with me as a talker but um you know sometimes you hit grand slams and you can't do it every time you like to hit home runs but man you hit a couple of grand slams here lately barking at the press is a grand slam i have to tell you it's a really good piece you betcha it's one of those pieces that I not only liked writing, but I really enjoyed researching. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. Uh, we'll get to it in just a second, but just out of curiosity, because I said you as a writer, me as a speaker, truth is I write a little and you speak a lot too. But uh, do you know when you have a Grand Slam? Did you know when you submitted this that this was a little bit better than the standard deviation of a Tevi Troy piece? I knew I had something good. Yeah. I knew it was a good subject, and when and – I actually had started writing it in advance because Biden has this tendency to bark at the press. Yeah. So I was prepared when he had that comment about that really rude comment about Peter Ducey. Yeah. To just go immediately push it out there. Well, let's get into it. Uh, let's talk about it. Um, everyone will remember, and for some, maybe because Peter Ducey is the most prominent of the reporters this happened with, they remember uh, him going after uh, uh, Ducey, what was it, about a week ago or so. Uh, but there were a bunch of other incidents right around that time that really didn't bubble up uh, as as high. And there was a lot in his past as well. Walk, walk us through Joe, B- Joe Biden's relationship with the press, and then we'll circle back uh, to other presidents. Yeah, I would say Joe Biden in his uh, current iteration, shall we call him, yeah. but as president and as candidate, he has shown a marked impatience with the press that not only – did he call Peter Ducey a stupid something? I won't say on your yeah. radio show, but the son of a you know what? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, but the week before, when he was asked about his really intemperate comments about uh, Jefferson Davis yeah. 
and Bull Connor comparing anyone who disagrees with him basically to racist and Confederates, uh, he pushed back against the reporter Philip Wegman, a very good reporter at Real Clear Politics, and not only denied that he said it, he said, look at what I said, I didn't say that, and he made some really snarky comments about, I thought you'd go into journalism because you know the English language. Yeah, unbelievable. And he didn't get a lot of blowback for it. I think he deserved some. Yep. But I think that was just something that's indicative of the way he has been approaching his relations with the press. And when you see somebody who has this tendency, you think that, hey, it's going to happen again. And so when I saw that Wegman thing, I said, this is going to happen again. And it did happen just a few days later with the Ducey incident. And the Jackie Heinrich thing, which didn't get as much attention as I think it should have, especially given the way CNN would have treated it if it were one of their female press press colleagues, right? I mean, CNS, CNN in the Trump days, I think we're almost teeing up these incidents yeah. to get Trump to yell at their reporters so that they could highlight it. And, you know, to, to be fair, I mean, this, this does happen in the presence of both parties. As I show in my piece, yeah. I think Trump uh, was often rude to reporters, as was Nixon. And mm-hmm. that one incident that I, that I highlight in the piece to a reporter named Pierpunt from CBS and I had not heard of, Nixon was incredibly rude to the guy, so much so that his family watching the press conference gasped. Yeah. And how rude Nixon was to this reporter. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Nixon, uh, who was it? Maybe Kissinger uh, described him as a consummate hater. And uh, and and that came out a lot with the press, including most famously to me, not the incident you wrote about, which I didn't know about. And I thought I knew most of Nixon history, but that was good that you put it in there. But including really um, his uh, statement must have been about, I'm guessing, 1962 when he lost his bid to run for governor of California. And he said, you guys must go ahead and celebrate. You can go ahead and celebrate now. You won't have Dick Nixon to kick around anymore. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I do put that in the piece. That was before yeah. he was president. Yeah. That's the most famous one. His famous last press conference, yeah. supposed last conference. Yeah. He gave many more after that. But, but, the, but, but pointing out that that was, that was 62, right, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Pointing out that that relationship with the media, that, that antagonistic relationship with the media and Nixon uh, well predated 1962. I mean, it probably goes back all the way to his uh, House and American Activities Committee work, his Whitaker Chambers work, and indeed his campaign against, uh, who was it, Helen Gagan Doug- Douglas, right? The pink, the pink lady. Yeah. I think that's really where it yeah. started. Yeah. 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 Exactly right. Exactly right. Well, the Biden thing has a lot of interesting elements to it. Let me try and describe this. Um, I did something so you wouldn't have to. I watched uh, Bill Maher's show from last Friday. Oh, thank you for that favor. You betcha. I thought I'd jump on the grenade for you there, buddy. (laughs) Um, And Bill Maher, I can say a lot about Bill Maher, but one of the interesting things that he showed, sometimes people meld their hand in a way they don't intend. He read a tweet to make fun of the tweeter. And the tweeter was seizing on Joe Biden's attack on Ducey and said, when's the last time we had a president this antagonistic towards the press? One might even call it declaring war against the media. And it was obviously a tweet that was in jest. It was obviously a tweet trying to peek and pick at the liberal or the corporate media for not getting on Biden as heavily as they got on Trump. Bill Maher took it seriously and he goes, is this guy an idiot? Does he not remember the last? It was really weird. He said, does he not remember the name Donald Trump? Isn't that weird that a comedian wouldn't even get that? 
that it shows right. you a frame it, it of mind. The problem with social media, Twitter especially, that you can't, or email too, you, you can't tell tone from an email. So somebody can be sarcastic and you may not realize it and take it seriously. But I, I, I think I'm being too kind to Marn. Well, in a sense, but I mean, yeah, what kind of what kind of view do you have to have of conservatives to think someone would have wrote written that without having? Obvious sarcasm in mind, right? You have to you have to have a pretty warped sense of the conservative movement to take a tweet like that without sarcasm, don't you? <laughs> I would think well, so. Oh yeah, that is how conservatives are increasingly viewed these days. Yeah, and, no, that, and in, uh, in the Nixon incident shows in for a long time in the past too. In a little bit, you can stay with us a while, right? Of course. In a little bit, Tevi, I want to do some comparisons between the Biden administration and the Carter administration. But before we do, something people don't know about Jimmy Carter, and I'm glad you brought it up, was um, was his antagonistic relationship with the press as well. Today, Jimmy Par- Carter is seen, and for the last 40 years, he's been seen as some avuncular, cheerful, easygoing, nice guy, right? This wasn't Jimmy Carter circa 1976 and 1980, was it? Yeah, Jimmy Carter and Easygoing are not two words I would put together. Right. I mean, the man right. who would micromanage who got to use the White House tennis court. So uh, he's not a laid-back, Beach Boys listening to guy kind of guy. You want to do a – before we move on to some of the other stuff, you want to do a little bit of a comparison between the two White Houses uh, for a moment? Let's, let's, let's do talk about it just a little bit because there's one thing that is highly – disanalogous, though there are a lot of things we could compare Biden and Carter's administrations thus far. I know we're early on, but thus far, you know, you could look at the economy, you could look at foreign relations, Iran again, plaguing both of them in a sense, maybe of their own making. But the one thing that's disanalogous is that one of the historical reviews of Carter's failure was that of an outsider to Washington who didn't know how to play the Washington, shall we call it, game for lack of a better word. That is not a problem Joe Biden has or should have, right? It's not a problem he should have, but he appears to have it. I just think he seems disconnected from Congress and where the actual votes are. And he seems, and it may be something to do with this COVID where you don't see people in person, you can't gauge what's going on. But it just seems to me like he doesn't have a good sense of how he can build a majority coalition in Congress. Let's let's come back on that. And then I want to talk about one of your other columns, which has to do with White House intellectuals, intellectuals in the White House saving presidencies. I'm Seth Liebson. He is uh, presidential and cultural historian Tevi Troy. His most recent book, Fight House, Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, coming to you live from the Guns Etc. studios. Dr. Tevi Troy is our guest, cultural and presidential historian, talking about several columns he's written recently, all having to do with the Biden presidency and the operations of that presidency. By the way, Tevi, before I jump to the intellectual part, your piece on intellectuals in the White House, uh, let me stay with your piece in the Washington Examiner, just one more moment, titled Barking at the Press. Um has Joe Biden accomplished a kind of – or at least until recently, did he accomplish some kind of Teflon cover or protection in the sense that as you relate the history, he was never really an easygoing guy with 
people from the other side or from the media if they asked him tough questions. But he got that he, – he, he achieved having that mantle as the decent, nice, easygoing guy. Let me, let me put a, a piece of flesh on that bone. When John McCain died, Joe Biden gave one of the eulogies here in Phoenix and it was covered live. And it was all about – I can read the quotes. I've done it before. But it was all about lamenting the time when he and John McCain were in the Senate together and how bipartisanship could work, and the trick of it was never to question anyone's motives. He must have said that two or three times. We never questioned anyone's motives. And I was listening to it. I was watching it live at the time, and I thought, this is not the Joe Biden I know. This is not the Joe Biden of Robert Bork, Clarence Thomas, or the Mitt Romney put you all in chains to a black audience. But people thought that of Joe Biden. Somehow there was a Teflon aspect to this. Otherwise, what a lot of us knew of as a very acerbic politician. Am I misreading this? No, I think he was very good for a long time at putting out this sense of him as both a decent person and a moderate person. And I think as president, he's not really shown the decency and he's not really shown the moderation. But that was definitely the aspect that he was trying to highlight for a long time. And I don't know if it's Teflon or it was very careful strategizing on the part of him and his, his, his advisors, but he had a persona that he has not continued to pursue as president. It's 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 it, it and it, it but doesn't it go a little bit a little bit back a little further back than just the presidency though? I mean, you know what he did to Clarence Thomas, what he said about Mitt Romney in 2012. There are other examples. I mean, he, but 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 but. In fairness to the point, maybe it's just, you know, another politician who, you know, you can tell is lying because his mouth is moving kind of thing, right? No, no, I'm agreeing with you, Seth. Yeah. What, what I think is he was, for a long time, very careful to make sure that he could convey the sense of him as a moderate uh -huh, person, uh -huh. even as he would go slash and burn against the Robert Bork or against the Clarence Thomas. So he, he did have his partisan moments. But at the same time, he was trying to tend that other side of the persona ah. and did that for a long time. And I think he has stopped tending the other side of the persona that is the side that the media has long happily reported on as the image of moderate person. One of your books is titled Intellectuals in the American Presidency. And one of the things that Joe Biden tried to hold himself out as during his career in the Senate was some kind of great constitutional uh, intellectual. He chaired the Senate Judiciary Committee and he seemed to enjoy somewhat more than others a lot of the back and backs and forth with judicial nominees but also judicial scholars. He seemed to en enjoy having the reputation of someone who could speak their language about you know weird or abstruse constitutional doctrine. For those of us that actually kind of knew those doctrines though, it always seemed like he was punching above his weight. This was never some great constitutional intellectual, was it? No, but he, he liked talking to people of ideas. In fact, when I wrote that Washington Post column about presidents and intellectuals, I mentioned Biden claiming that he wants to reach out to intellectuals. This guy who was a well-known academic told me that Biden had invited him to the White House when Biden was vice president to get his thoughts about how to proceed and uh, give some historical perspective on things. So, I think Biden likes hanging out with intellectuals, even if I don't think he would. I would categorize him as being in that category itself. Has he gotten 
a better pass from the press than others in the Democratic Party? I mean, he's obviously gotten – I think it's fair to say he's obviously gotten a better pass than almost any Republican. But has he gotten a better pass than most Democrats or about the same? It's a good question. I would say that in – I think uh, in, in the recent presidency, I mean, he has definitely taken some hits even from the mainstream media. Uh, but they've been pretty soft on him. I, I just can't forget that over the summer when he went out for ice cream and the mm-hmm. reporters asked him what kind of ice cream she was eating. And he said chocolate, chocolate chip, and they all cheered. Yeah. And I just could not imagine the press doing that for, let's put it aside Donald Trump with his own antagonism of the press, but doing that for George W. Bush, for whom I worked, or Mitt Romney when he was running for president. It just seemed like the press is softer on him than you would have on a, on a typical Republican. But I think, as, as you know, Maybe it's in line with what Democrats get. Well, I was just going to say, yeah, on him, maybe also the children. Would would it be a fair conclusion or at least an arguably fair conclusion to think that if Donald Trump Jr. had made the news that Hunter Biden had made, uh, press would have found where Jr. lived and camped out in front of him and, you know, would have been tailing him uh, the way that um, they aren't doing with Hunter Biden? You know, it reminds me, you, you talked about these Biden-Carter comparisons. Yeah. There was Billy Carter, ah, who was yeah. Carter's brother, yeah. who uh, was portrayed as some kind of ignorant, southern, drunkard moron. And he actually wasn't as bad as he was portrayed in the press, but he did do some things that weren't so smart, including uh, having conversations with the Libyans and potentially doing a uh, business deal with them. So uh, I think that was an embarrassment for Carter. But, but I, I think Billy was unfairly caricatured by the press. Part of that might have been a Southern thing, too, don't you think, possibly? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think part of that had to do with, with kind of a, a, an antagonism uh, towards the South. And, um, and, and, and while we're on that point, just because we're going to a break, so I'll make it a small one before we pick up the intellectual piece that you wrote for The Washington Post I, I want to pursue with you. Just while we're on that point for a quick moment, I was going to say – that maybe the press was giving Joe Biden a bit of a pass because the stakes were against Donald Trump and maybe they'll ramp up a little bit more the further we get from Donald Trump. But then again, the elasticity of these things, we are going into a November election, so maybe not, huh? Maybe not. Yeah, I I think if anything, the press is going to continue to try and keep carrying him. And that's why I think the whole uh, kind of alienation of the press by the barking is is a poor strategy. That's why I kind of lay out three strategies in my piece, and the barking is the wrong strategy, but also being too nice and too soft on the press, like Gerald Ford and George H.W. Bush, doesn't work either. And I think the kind of genial pushback with a well-timed jibe is much better, and I put um, Obama, Bush 43, and Reagan in that category. Yeah, and John Kennedy too, wouldn't you? I did. I I didn't go as far back as Kennedy in my piece, but Kennedy kind of started this whole thing. He would have these press conferences, and he would Tell jokes and the press would laugh. But uh, yeah. The press just didn't ask a tough questions back then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. True, true. All right. I want to talk about intellectuals in the White House, what they can and cannot do, what they may or may not do. I'm Seth Leibson. He's Dr. Tevi Troy. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Tevi Troy is our guest, presidential historian, author of several books, most recently Fight House, Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump. One of his more interesting books as well is Intellectuals in the American Presidency, and he had a piece in the Washington Post 
about what a White House intellectual inside the Biden White House might be able to do or might look like. Um, Tevi, first of all, talk to us about what you mean when you talk about intellectuals in the American presidency, really the thesis of, of, of one of your first books. And tell us, lay that out, and then we'll get more into the drilling down of the more contemporary. Is that okay? Absolutely. This is my first book. I wrote it in part as my dissertation, getting my PhD from the University of Texas, but then I expanded it into a book and brought it into the present day at the time. And the idea is that many presidents, especially starting with Kennedy, have used intellectuals to advance their political interests. But you have to use them in a careful and appropriate way. And the reason I started thinking about this was Biden's press conference where he said, to fix things after his first very problematic year, that he was going to reach out to historians and academics and intellectuals more. So I wanted to go back and look at that history and see which presidents did it well and which presidents didn't do it so well on the other side. And I guess my thesis from the book was that you have to be cognizant of intellectuals. Whether you're a Democrat or Republican, you might use different strategies for the types of intellectuals you reach out to, Democrats being more academic types and Republicans being more think tank types, but you ignore intellectuals at your peril. It would be natural in some respects and maybe even a caricature uh, in some ways uh, to say what I'm about to say, which is there might be a natural disinclination towards intellectuals uh, from the conservative perspective. Uh, William Buckley's famous line about who he would rather be governed by, of course, right? The first uh, several hundred names of the Harvard Directory or the Boston Telephone book kind of setting a stage for that. But <laughs> talk up, talk just a moment about that and his, his brother running against Pat Moynihan. This idea of intellectuals and politics, it, it's kinda, it, it kind of hits conservatives at some raw points sometimes, doesn't it? There was that famous exchange with Jim Buckley and, and Pat Moynihan. Do you want to do some of that? Yeah, absolutely. So intellectuals are ne- not necessarily seen as uh, favorites of the right, right. or fans of the right. And uh, this goes back to when Franklin Delano Roosevelt brought the brains trusters into yeah. his administration. That's, oh, that's so where that's it starts. Okay, good, good, good. Okay, that's where the distrust started. Columbia, okay. uh-huh. who went to, they didn't go to the White House because there wasn't a White House staff back then, but they went to the Department of Agriculture, State, and, um, and the Treasury Department. And actually, our friend Peter Roth emailed me today and said I should have added that they brought communists to those departments. Yeah, 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 that's right. But, State Department uh, particularly. But the sure. larger point was yeah. that Republican congressmen were very nervous about the bringing of, in of these intellectuals, and one on the floor of the House called them pointy-headed nincompoops who couldn't get elected dog cats. <laughs> so there was a lot of antagonism, antagonism towards intellectuals. I think in the 1950s, there was a resurgence of interest in intellectuals and uh, Jacques Barzun was on the cover of Time magazine in, in the mid-1950s. Yeah. The Sputnik incident where the Soviets beat us into outer space sure. spurred interest in getting the best minds to Washington to help us in the, in the Cold War. And so Kennedy recognizes there's an element of liberal intellectuals who could be beneficial to him. Conservatives are still wary of them, but by the 1970s, you start to have conservatives who are not comfortable on university campuses, as right. today, that doesn't change, right. who are going to the think tanks of Washington, conservative free market think tanks, places like Hoover and Hudson and AEI, and working in those places to advance conservative ideas because they're not welcome at the university. And Ronald Reagan very wisely 
brings those people into his 1980 campaign and then later into his administration, starting this whole core of what Teddy Wright called intellectual outriders who can help advance the conservative cause. And this is why Pat Moynihan, who you were talking about earlier, he calls the Republicans the, the party of ideas. Mm-hmm. The Democrats have fallen behind on the ideas front. Who were some of Reagan's intellectuals? Well, the guy I highlight in my book is Marty Anderson, mm-hmm. who was an economist and worked in the Nixon White House, but helped collect 500 different thinkers, intellectuals, to advance the Reagan campaign, to endorse Reagan, and to come up with policy ideas. And many of those went into the administration, including Bill Bennett, who's a you know, mentor and hero of yours, and also Jean Kirkpatrick, who worked at the United Nations. She was the ambassador to the U.S. Can I pick up on this? When we come back, we're hitting a quick break here, Tevi. But would Nixon have been the first with Kissinger? Ford had one or two. Can we do some of that when we come back real quick? Sure. I'm Seth Leibson. He is Dr. Tevi Troy. We will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. Dr. Tevi Troy is our guest. He has a bunch of columns uh, out recently covering the Washington uh, uh, publication scene. He is a presidential historian. His most recent book, Fight House, Rivalries in the White House, from Truman to Trump. And he postulates in the Washington Post piece about an intellectual in-house, an in-house intellectual that um, – might help Joe Biden out. Trust us, folks. We're not in the service here of wanting to help Joe Biden, but uh, we are in the service of talking about historical precedents and analogs. Intellectuals, conservative intellectuals in the White House for a moment before we get to Biden, Tevi, because I am frightened of what a liberal intellectual would say right now. But the liberal intellectual once upon a time would have been Pat Moynihan, as we mentioned, would have been Arthur Schlesinger uh, would have been someone very much more like, shall we say, what a Joe Lieberman or a Hubert Humphrey kind of Democrat, not the kind of Democratic Party leadership we see today, right? The, these were oh, intellectuals. Look at Arthur were... Schlesinger, who's definitely a man of the left, and certainly to the left of you or, or I, but he was a cold warrior. He yeah. was for America. He was a patriot. Right. He served this great country in World War II in the Office of Strategic Services, which is the precursor to the CIA, and he also he wrote a book in Hated the 1990s it. called The Disuniting of America, where he basically blasted what we now know as these woke tendencies. Right, multiculturalism, right? Yeah, yeah. Multi, multi, so right. It was a different type of intellectual, and I, I take your point about we're not in the service of trying to help Joe Biden, <laughs> but what I argue in my Washington Post piece is that Biden, in the way he's used intellectuals thus far has been dangerous. He appears to be using this guy John Meacham mm-hmm. as his outside intellectual advisor, going against what the Biden tendencies for his whole career have been of moderation. And Meacham appears to be pushing him away from moderation and away from decency, because Meacham is the guy who came up with those words about calling people who disagree with Biden, Jeff Davis, and calling them Bull Connor. And Meacham also apparently is the guy who put together this group of liberal historians who pushed Biden to try and be FDR or LBJ with a very, very narrow congressional majority. So I think Meacham has been advising Biden in a bad direction. And what I argue for is Biden trying to find an intellectual to come in-house, into the White House, and promote the tendencies that Biden actually campaigned on as opposed to the ones that he's governing on. Let me circle back to that because I did promise the Republican version first. Nixon brought in 
is, would Kissinger qualify or would Mo- Moynihan be the better example? That, that There's actually – I guess that exact uh, comparison when Nixon brought in Moynihan, right? Because Moynihan was a Democrat. Nixon definitively not so, right? That's that's what we're looking at here or that's what you, yeah, absolutely. you would be Look, there, were, there were PhDs in the Nixon White House like Arthur Burns who was yeah. an economist and, and Kissinger who was a national security advisor. But – Moynihan was a Democrat who was specifically brought in to reach out to the intellectual world and to be the in-house intellectual as opposed to someone who's working on a technical position. Mm-hmm. And that, that's the difference there between Moynihan and those other very smart guys. And Moynihan was indeed a Democrat, but he was railing on the excesses of the left in the late 1960s right. and had actually been pilloried by the left for his famous Moynihan report that he wrote when he was a, a LBJ staffer at the Department of Labor. So Moynihan understood the uh, cancel culture tendencies of the left even before we, we knew those words. And Moynihan, as a Democrat, told Nixon internally, yes, I'm a Democrat, I'm happy to help you with this stuff, but you need to develop a core of Republican intellectuals who can do this work for you as well. And we saw with future presidents, including Ford and then Reagan, they actually did bring in those Republican intellectuals. Did Nixon ever follow that or did, did, was there no time to get to that point? No time to get to that point, alas. But and, they, there were some memos that I found in my research that, that did suggest that and uh, recommended some people, including people we admire, like Irving Kristol, to serve in that kind of role. And then Ford did make use of it. You want to mention, make a mention of Ford? Yeah, Ford brought in a guy named Bob Goldwyn, mm-hmm. who was a, a very smart uh, philosophy professor who, when he left the Ford administration, went to the American Enterprise Institute, showing that the conservative intellectuals were less comfortable with academia and becoming more comfortable with the think tank world. And Ford regularly used Goldwyn to reach out to intellectuals, again, many of whom we admire, including Crystal, uh, but also Tom Sowell. Uh, I found letters in the archives from Harry Jaffer, whom I know is a mentor of yours, uh, Herman Kahn, who is the founder of the Hudson Institute. So a lot of these people were being reached out to by Bob Goldwyn in the short Ford administration. You know, maybe I pay too close attention um, to a sentence, but I... I, I... <laughs> Can I tease you? A mentor of just mine? <laughs> Am I the only person on this phone call? Harry Java was a mentor too. <laughs> um, Tevi Reagan then, of course, did it. Did uh, with with the names we had mentioned: the Kirkpatricks, uh, Marty Anderson, Bennett, others, a lot of others actually. But what? Of his successors, obviously you would know the W administration well. You can talk to us about that. But what about W's father? What about George H.W. Bush? Yeah, I argue that George H.W. Bush made a mistake in not reaching out to intellectuals and, and kind of pushing them away a little bit when he said at the convention speech that they wanted a kinder, gentler nation that yeah. was being a jibe against conservatism. And then later in the transition, when one of his officials says that we have our, our people have don't have ideologies, they have mortgages. Right. That was, again, seen as a, as a jab at conservatism. Right. And so the conservative intellectuals didn't exactly flock to Bush, and I think that left Bush a little uncovered on his right flank, and we all know that Pat Buchanan challenged Bush in 1992 in New Hampshire. He didn't win, but he had such a strong showing that it showed a lot of weakness in conservative support for Bush, and I think that hurt Bush. Yeah, and the wrong kind of intellectual can hurt too. I, you would know this very well, and I only know it from reading newspaper accounts and from anecdotes. But is it possible Bush, the elder H.W. Bush, thought he had his intellectual with Dick Darman? My point being 
that you can have the wrong intellectual too. Just being intellectual ain't enough, right? Yeah, Dick Darman was very smart, but he wasn't an intellectual. Okay, he was more of a technocrat, and he alienated conservatives all the time. And he was quite clear about the fact that he didn't have an ideology. And uh, then there was someone named Jim Pinkerton in yeah, the administration yeah. who was trying to push an ideologically conservative agenda. The agenda that, in fact, would be taken up by Newt Gingrich a few years later in taking over the House. Dick Darman pushed down Pinkerton, embarrassed him in front of the newspapers, and uh, made sure that Pinkerton's agenda didn't go anywhere. Well, it didn't work because we have Pinkerton on this show quite often. <laughs> Pinkerton lives, I guess. Yeah. It's like the old Nietzsche shirt, right? right. I mean, you know, Pinkerton lives in actual fact, and Darman did pass away. Yeah. But Pinkerton's ideas lived well beyond Darman. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Let me come back with you on some concluding thoughts if we can. I'm Seth Leibson. He's Tevi Troy. We'll be right back. Tevi Troy, I want to thank you for spending your hour with us. I try to give you good music. I hope you like the music. People people come for the talk, but they stay for the music. <laughs> you and I have been friends for close to 40 years, and uh, some of it has been over music. But on the talk front, you are hosting an interesting conference coming up, the 21st Century Presidency uh, and you're having another guest of ours, uh, I see, is is uh, in the lineup, uh, someone I have known uh, over the years, Amity Schleis. Tell tell us briefly about this con- this conference. Yeah, it occurred to me that the 20th century is 20 years old. So okay. we're one-fifth of the way into the century. Four men, and they've all been men, have held the presidency, Bush, Obama, Trump, Biden. And each of them has expanded the purview of the president in ways that in toto, if you add up all the expansions of these four people – have made the presidency of today a very different presidency than the presidency that Bill Clinton left at the end of the 90s. So I'm putting together a group of scholars and former practitioners, former White House aides, to come together and talk about what this new presidency is, what it means, and what we should do about it going forward. When is this conference, Tevi? It's going to be on February 15th. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll send you a link to it so you can have people sign up if, if they want. It's a two-hour virtual conference. People can join from anywhere. And I think I have a nice mix of people on the left and the right, but people who really care about ideas, about the presidency, about where the country is going, who want to have a real discussion about what happens if we just let institutions drift or go off in directions that make perhaps the founding fathers and the Constitution did not originally intend. That's what I love about you. You believe in the power of ideas and their importance, which almost sounds like a throwaway line, but it really isn't because it's been our effort and some of our friends and many of the guests we have on this show, like you, Tevi, who know that if conservatives abandon the field of ideas, they truly abandon the field. Nature as well as politics abhors a vacuum. We love you, Tevi Troy. Thank you so much for spending your hour with us. Thank you, and thanks for all your listeners. You betcha. And until tomorrow, to all of you, God bless and class dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
the explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.